Hello and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. This is Shyam Khanna, your host, and today we have Hussain Kachai, the founder of Onfido. He stopped by their MOOC booth at Money 2020 and was super impressed by the way that they were taking on some of today's most sophisticated fraud problems. Onfido is a software company that helps businesses verify identities using a photo-based identity document, selfies, and AI algos. Onfido counts Square, Revolut, and Zipcar among its 1,500 clients. Onfido was actually founded in 2012 by three Oxford students, and we are fortunate to have with us our CEO and co-founder, Hussein Kasai, today. Thanks so much for joining us. Great to be on. Could you please walk us through how you founded Onfido and what core problems your company is addressing today? So I started the company with my two co-founders seven years ago, and we basically had different experiences when it comes to identity, but we felt that it was a broken process for a number of reasons. For me, I first experienced how bad it was when I turned 10 and my parents moved from Iran to the UK. I just remember it taking them about four months to be able to open a bank account and rent in their own name just because they went on a credit bureau. And the way that we look at the market and, and why we felt that it's broken is that businesses only really have two ways of verifying their users. One was to see them face-to-face inside a bank branch, for instance, which is not convenient and it's not very scalable. And the alternative is for their the businesses to rely on credit bureaus. The challenge with the credit bureaus is, especially given the breaches, the data is not as secure as it once was. So it doesn't offer you that security. As well as that, it excludes half the world's population who are either underbanked or unbanked and therefore not on a credit bureau to begin with. So we looked at how there's this problem of both exclusion of half, half the world's population, the inconvenience of having to rely on face-to-face interactions where that is deployed, and finally that the security is not uh, where it should be, and that the United Nations estimates that up to 5% of the world's GDP is laundered money which is using human trafficking, drug trafficking, terrorist financing, and so on. And what's worse is that less than 1% of that is used by authorities. So 99% of money laundering is actually successful. So we were, uh, it's quite clear for us that it's broken and needs to be improved. And our approach of using government IDs and facial biometrics was uh, quite clearly for us a, a next natural transition in the evolution of people essentially being able to access services. I think this is such a great space for the reasons that you mentioned as well. Um, and I know that this, it's quite a happening one as well. Companies that come to mind, definitely Nova Credit, uh, Juvo as well, uh, tackling different parts of this fairly broken ecosystem. Very much so. Yeah, you could definitely call it the same space. So it's, there are two parts. There's One is convenience and just more and more, if you can call it financial technology companies or equally just trust marketplaces, offering convenient means for users to access their services. The second is um, organizations, and especially fintechs, that are actually are able to service those who historically have been underserved, the bottom of the pyramid, uh, so to speak. And by being able to establish trust and verify individuals remotely, digitally, as long as that individual has access to a government-issued identity document and a camera-enabled device, it's essentially opening up a whole set of uh, new markets in, in many new regions. Yeah, you're right about that one. And I think moving on to more of a student perspective, a lot of students nowadays 
especially at the business schools and definitely in engineering schools as well, had great interest in entrepreneurship. Uh, what kind of advice would you have for these budding entrepreneurs to really look at the world's problems and you know build a company that addresses them and you know looks at things in a very different and unique way? So there's quite a bit, I suppose, uh, to both understand and do. The important thing is, is to use the experience of being at a university to get involved with uh, initiatives. It doesn't have to be a startup; it can even be student society. But that whole um, process of learning how to get things done uh, will come in handy because obviously the idea and, and hypothesis around what may be of value in the market is only a hypothesis which can prove to be correct or wrong, but what is definitely going to be useful no matter what someone ends up doing is going to be being able to execute. Uh, and therefore, all these uh, experiences and opportunities that arise should be taken advantage of. As for starting a company, I would suggest that it's, there's actually never been a better time to do so. There are a number of different reasons for that, but in large part, for instance, if you consider just like in financial technologies and fintechs, the cost of starting a company is now far lower than it would have been 10 years ago. Your, your average tech company with maybe $1,000 a month has probably access to the same software and productivity kits that a, a mainstream institution would have had for costing them millions uh, only a decade ago. Uh, second, the regulation around starting companies is actually much more favorable, specifically to, to fintechs, because you have niche regulation now. You don't, you can, you don't have to be regulated as a bank. You can, if you're just a payment company, you can just get the um, compliant on the payment side or remittance and so on and so forth. And lastly, there are more and more examples and, uh, I guess, tools and, and accelerators and programs that are geared towards helping people test out innovative ideas. Uh, and basically have a go at trying to create a value proposition that is used and needed in the marketplace. So for those reasons, my key advice is, number one would be to get active and, and start doing, whether it's at a student site level or a startup. And second, if you are focusing on starting a company, there is now a scientific approach in doing so, whether you study the lean method or the lean startup and others, uh, this is, is a new way of looking at it, which is a much more scientific way of doing so and can hopefully quickly help people get into understanding whether what they're working on is going to be a success or not. And, and the key, I guess, takeaway really is to focus on the customer problem and try to develop minimum viable products with the least amount of cost possible to validate a hypothesis around whether there's a need for that product or service or not. Mm -hmm. well, that's absolutely uh, something that we look at at school. In fact, we even taught that, you know, I took a class with, with a professor, Professor Ethan Mollock, going through this kind of scientific approach at our business school. So um, that's definitely very topical nowadays. Uh, just talking about learning and within this space as well, do you know any kind of maybe under-the-radar podcasts, blogs, books, any kind of medium that you'd recommend to students, just learn a little bit more about FinTech or identity management? Yeah, there are loads. I mean, podcasts on sort of how to start a startup is good in our space. There's the One World Identity, for those who are interested in identity, One World Identity is very good podcast. For those in, in financial services, American Banker is typically a good source. On YouTube, you have the Startup Lab workshops and Y Combinator sort of contributes quite a bit, both in terms of blogs, Paul Graham's blogs, and that, you know, 
uh, were written a while ago, but they're still very relevant and podcasts and things of that nature. The good thing that we have now, I guess all of us with internet access, is we can be quite flexible as far as whatever we need to access. As if it's a niche need, there's so much material out there. Um, and it's quite easy to pick out any area to, that someone is curious about and pretty quickly have a moderate idea or a decent idea to how it works by basically doing self-research. There's no need to go through any formal program. Uh, the vast majority of these are now very accessible online. That makes sense. And so given the way you sit and given your role within digital identity and fraud protection, what's one best practice that you would tell any listeners to help them really secure their identity? From an individual perspective, um, so you, there are many different types of fraud and so on. So uh, for me, it's kind of a, a simple uh, method for managing your passwords helps. So there is a notion that, you know, if you make it complicated, you add many complex numbers and so on, that will help. But um, for me, you can kind of, as long as you pick three randomly, three words that are unrelated, you combine them and you put a letter afterwards, that can be as secure as a word that's got loads of different kind of characters and symbols, so to speak. So I would have some sort of system by which you develop passwords. So if you pick three random words, let's just call it, you pick um, a book, podcast, and blue, then you put a number next to it, like three, you can index that yourself to say, you know, B, P, B, so that you can later, you save that and you can rem- remember what that password is by just looking at those letters, if that helps. Like a codified way for yourself to memorize or try to more easily remember all your different passwords. And it's not uh, a good thing to be doing. It's just a, a necessary thing, given that, unfortunately, I didn't step is made easier when people have weak passwords and therefore you can have account takeover and so on. That's one thing I think that's well worth doing. But the hope is that over the coming years, part of what we're working on is to help everyone easily access services in a secure way so that we do ultimately get to a passwordless world so that um, hopefully we would not need to all remember these dozens of different passwords and continuously be locked out and then try to go on and try to not pick which, which picture is the bus that we kind of are ultimately gain access again. It all needs to be solved. Right, and I think that that's just a natural evolution as to where we go, you know, from this password-centric world where someone in theory could just be looking over your shoulder and take your identity to something that's, you know, much more nuanced and hopefully much more secure as well than what we, than what we live in right now. So within the fintech space in the U.S., which vertical do you think has the greatest opportunity for Unpedo? So the verticals would be maybe like lending or wealth management, blockchain. Which one do you believe has this opportunity for you guys? In some ways, we don't necessarily distinguish between them. So we have our SDKs and APIs, and clients can basically choose them as they please. It's, it's either the trend or, or the common pattern across the board is wherever the, a good customer experience is necessary so that you can register uh, from the comfort of your own home with a camera-enabled device. And if you're enrolling, and say, Remitly, you download the Remitly app. As you're registering, at one point, you're asked to take a photo of your ID, a photo of your face, and you're enrolled. 
so that's the, that's the use case and that is where uh, we're most relevant. As far as the trends that come into it that, that we see and we think will continue to hold, we look at the first fintech wave, which has been historically and predominantly uh, around a better user experience. So that you know, digital registration, uh, good uh, UI and user interface and, and things of that nature. You know, if, if you get locked out, you don't have to call a call center and go through half an hour of, of questions, but you can maybe just take a photo of your face and be connected straight through to, to support or to unblock your account and so on. The second fintech wave we briefly talked about, which is around companies focused around targeting and being able to service the underbanked and underserved, uh, specifically in not just emerging markets, but naturally in the States, there are still very many who are underbanked and underserved. If there's a third fintech wave and this hasn't yet happened at scale, it's perhaps likely to be around sort of hyper-personalization, that if you hold uh, an account and you've had three months or six months of, of data that, that, that you've shared with that company, they can best say, you know, we can now offer you this specific savings rate, or we encourage you to buy this insurance product, or, or you know, you might want to consider this micro loan or this loan the next time you make a purchase, because given what we know about you, you might now be able to get a better rate, and so on and so forth. Right. So there are a whole things that have come. But your question around which one of these would, would benefit us, our focus is to help access across the board and wherever user experience is, is critical, as well as a secure onboarding journey, I'd like to think that we will continue to remain quite relevant. So within the sector itself, I know that you work with institutions of all sizes, I actually come from a big banking background. I used to work at J.P. Morgan, and then I interned in digital partnerships at BNY Mellon this summer, where we actually partner with a lot of fintechs. And so from the other side of the table, what kind of opportunities and challenges are there with working with you know, a very large, uh, heavily regulated financial institution? So we have had the good fortune of having both Microsoft and Salesforce, uh, their ventures teams as investors, so the uh, opportunities are, are naturally improvements to your or collaboration around uh, your technology. If relevant, that's just a massive bonus. Mm-hmm. So with Microsoft, not only are we a Azure customer, we're also a consumer of their cognitive services and a few other tools. So that is always quite beneficial. Uh, second is sort of access to new markets or new or accelerated access to markets and clients via partnerships. So not only are we a Microsoft partner, but specifically with Salesforce, we're on the app exchange, and that's opened up a whole new market for us, which is great. So not only are you improving your technology, but you can quite possibly increase sales and access to customers and so on. Uh, specific challenges, we are lucky in that we've not had them, but I do know from basically uh, both what I've read and what I've heard from, from friends or those who've gone through the journey is that large institutions just don't move at the same pace as startups do, which is shouldn't be news to, to most, and mm-hmm. requires patience. And therefore, uh, there should be an alignment of expectations at the outset of the relationship so that there are basically no surprises. So moving back to a student perspective, you know, a lot of students ask how they can best engage with companies or just learn about companies a little bit more. So what's the best way for someone in school to learn more or disengage with Onfido? So we write quite a bit. We produce blogs and um, we release videos and so on. So if you want to learn more about you know, how to be involved with a startup or what are some of the best practices, 
we got pieces around how we recruit, how we approach uh, the company culture and so on. So you can definitely follow our, our blog at unfido.com. We are also pretty active on, on Twitter and social media. And we host events so across our offices, both in New York and San Francisco, as well as London, Lisbon, Paris, and so on. We're quite active in the community. I would equally uh, encourage everyone, especially if you're at university, just to get involved with your local entrepreneurship society. And uh, there, there's, it's never too early to start learning and surrounding yourself with that uh, startup uh, mindset, uh, just so that as and when the time comes for you to be able to start your own company, then you would have ideally picked up enough of the skill set so that you have some whatever head start. So continuing on with that trend around, you know, like success stories and achievements and the like, what's, say, like the most aha moment or the single biggest, you know, success story that you guys have had at Onfido so far and what we're learning from that? There is this good feeling around uh, things coming around first full circle when you have team members who've really worked hard and contributed and learned and, and grown a great deal, leaving to set up their own company. So we are now on our sixth team member uh, who's left and started their own venture. And um, of the six, three or four have already been very successful. The other couple, it's, it's not, they're not there yet. But of the three or four that are sort of quite successful, it's just really, really good to see that they are bringing their own cultures and making their own mark and contributing to their own communities in a, kind of a similar way to, to where we started. Just because you kind of, the whole ecosystem and approach matters and the whole philosophy around encouraging and supporting entrepreneurship matters. Like from our stance, as far as the company goes, this is like the, the norm as far as, if you rewind back to maybe even hundreds of years ago or a thousand years ago, if you consider the way this all used to work, you'd have a normal market, uh, a local market, we call it a fruit market, where uh, someone would sort of sell fruits, and then you would get an apprentice as a stall owner or sort of seller. That apprentice would come and give a lot of energy and, and work hard for three or four years. They would learn everything there is to learn about that trade, and then after that period, they'd go to the other end of the market and set up their own fruit stand. That's often, you know, it can be in perfect competition. It's just the way that this whole thing works. So when you have so many dedicated people work on the company mission, gain and learn and have essentially like what you could see as an accelerated PhD in, in how to execute and, and deliver on goals and so on. And then you see them leaving and doing their own. You can kind of see the growth and how much they develop. I think that is by far the most, not just humbling, but like things that, that I myself am quite proud of and really like to see. That, that's certainly pretty unique. You know, I was I was trying to see if there was some kind of like story, but I think that this is a very interesting and very uh, rewarding, you know, way to see that folks who work within your company, you know, spread their wings and go out and venture out then in the sectors. So that's definitely pretty appreciated. And so, what what one fintech trend or what one fintech sector do you feel right now is not getting maybe as much attention as it should? Um, so there's attention in terms of like media and, and others because the ones that are doing well get a lot of attention amongst consumers that are consuming their services. For me personally, it's, 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 I would suggest those who actually in a global way are able to effectively serve the bottom of the pyramid. So again, if you consider like a Tala, for example, 
throughout uh, across the, the world and in some emerging markets, they're now able to give micro loans, anything from $10 to $50 and, and often more to individuals. And they're able to do so because they're able to remotely verify them in part. And the cost of doing so is much less than having to keep them face to face and certainly a lot more scalable. But it's in many ways a win-win. So people who have never had access to financial services are now able to access them. And um, fintechs are, at least those who are, have this kind of approach, are able to go global and have a very large footprint in a relatively short amount of time. So I think we're going to see this, what I see as like the second fintech wave, which is around geared towards the uh, underbanked and unbanked and the bottom of the pyramid. Uh, the extent to which it's underappreciated, you know, I couldn't speak to. I definitely think we're going to hear a lot more of these examples over the coming years. And, you know, just concluding with this, what are you most looking forward to in 2020? First, from a market perspective, uh, but then secondly, straight up from an on-feeder perspective as well. So from a on-feeder perspective, we are quite fortunate in that. So we released our new fraud index, which talks a lot about how uh, sophisticated bad actors are becoming. But, but there is essentially helping the, the market understand how this all works. So we've got some clear graphs. It's all anonymized, but the data that, that we've released that shows, for example, on a Saturday and Sunday, the fraud rates drop substantially uh, for the tax. The bad actors trying to basically, and that's not because uh, of any other reason uh, other than the fact that these are nine to five workers. They are on performance-related pay. They work in office blocks. They take holiday and sick pay and so on. And on the weekend, they, they go and take a break just like anyone else. Um, so although over the weekend, volumes as far as checks are as high as during the weekend, often even a little bit higher, the fraud rate goes down. So opportunities to just share interesting statistics like that and have um, everyone see the relevance and importance and specifically the sophistication of these fraudsters uh, is helpful because it's, it's somewhat of a secretive world. As you can imagine, naturally, it's crime, right? It's, it's fraud. And secondly, what I am looking forward to the most as far as the market goes uh, it's an appreciation of where our identity is headed, especially over 2020. I think it's going to continue to come to a head in that more and more organizations are actually waking up to the strategic value of identity. And historically, it may have been seen as a compliance or a requirement or it's essentially a tick box, and now it's being seen as a strategic imperative in the sense that if you think about it, if, it, if an organization can verify the identity of their users and authenticate them, Mm -hmm. The rest of that exercise, as far as the fintech goes, is essentially accounting with a UX component to it. So it's, the, the strategic value of that is becoming a lot more uh, well-known and appreciated. And ultimately, what we are most looking forward to is this move towards what we call consumer enforceable identity, where individuals and consumers are given the chance to own and control their own legal identity and in a very friction and, frictionless and convenient way. So the consumer can then opt into all the services they want to access without having to be checked every time. So that is uh, a couple of things that are happening that will be very exciting to see as we go through. Yeah, I, I've really seen, you know, how there's been such a public debate about identity. Uh, a lot of countries, India, for instance, you know, has come out with its Aadhaar card a few years ago, which has really caused a lot of evolution in that space. Other countries, they link identity very closely to a phone record. And I think that that's part of Juvo's value proposition as well. Uh, even with Libra, right, I think that that was one major piece of the puzzle. 
that was really, generally speaking, unanswered around, you know, how do you get this currency to all these people, but also, you know, who are these people? How do you really validate uh, identity for the underbanked? And I'm personally just looking forward to uh, this space, really, getting more in the limelight and getting more in the public eye. And I'm excited to see how it evolves in the next few years. When it comes to, yeah, of course, there are uh, places, more and more countries are, are not, so it's not just businesses becoming aware of the value and necessity of identity, it's also governments. And the United Nations statistics is around a 1% increase in financial and identity inclusion due to a 3.6% increase in GDP in emerging markets. So as you can see it's a massive return on investment to have people be part of an identity ecosystem and ultimately be able to gain access to services. When it comes to the different approaches, there are what you could call centralized approaches, the Adar card system, Estonian system, Chinese system. Uh, they are ultimately centralized systems where they have centralized databases and people trying to uh, claim their identities via biometrics or otherwise. The challenge is always going to continue to be that these will inevitably get breached, as has happened in, in all these cases. And that's going to pretty much not just produce the ecosystem, but uh, reduce its integrity and diminish the, the utility. So in our mind, and, and part of our vision, is that we're going to move to much more of a decentralized approach, where every individual is going to own and control their own legal identity, but they're not being the centralized database uh, at any point where there is a critical uh, piece of the puzzle that can essentially um, get breached and stop and sort of spoil the whole integrity parts to it. So although there are many approaches, I think more and more organizations uh, and all identity ecosystem partners are coming to realize that we have to all get around the table and start thinking about how we're going to move to a decentralized approach and not a centralized approach. Sounds good. So just in conclusion, you really walked us through, you know, how your own experiences moving moving to the UK from Iran really got you thinking about the underbanked and thinking about some of the challenges around creating an identity and creating, you know, your own mark within a certain financial system. Then you moved on to looking at entrepreneurship from a scientific-based approach. So creating an MVP, running through a few hypotheses, and really engaging with the general entrepreneurship community wherever you are. I think that will definitely be very well received by a lot of students who would be listening to this podcast. And we moved on to talk about some really interesting tips for passwords. I think that's the first time I've really heard of that one. I think it's, it's a pretty cool one to keep in the back of my own head. And then in conclusion, you, know, you spoke about uh, how you measure the success of your team, how the entire ecosystem matters. Now, obviously, just given where you guys sit, uh, you guys have a lot of clients, like 1,500, I believe. And I think I'm very excited to see where the fintech ecosystem goes over the next few years all over the world. I think there are a lot of very innovative companies, and they're really solving uh, major issues for a lot of folks. And so with that, you know, I think I'll wrap up with this one. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it on the Wharton Fintech podcast, and hopefully see you again. Absolutely. Thanks for the time. Thank you.